Welcome to Arbor Bridge Church's weekly podcast with your teacher, Daryl Canty. Arbor Bridge Church exists to bridge the gospel and our community by connecting people to Jesus and each other. Visit us online at arborbridgechurch.com. Quick, quick uh, thoughts from history. Um, so um, some of you guys are familiar with indulgences. Um, they're, they're tools religious people use, used for a very long time. Um, now they're used mostly in Catholicism, but an indulgence is basically an attempt to remove uh, punishment or lessen punishment of, of sin or the consequences of sin through certain kinds of acts. Um, so a, a person is temporarily punished for the sin that's accumulated in life, so an indulgence is a way to kind of reduce that. So indulgences can be anything from good works to acts of service or prayer or meditation on the word. Um, we don't use indulgences in our church family, but um, they're, they're used religiously all, you know, all over the world. So the idea, some of you guys know the idea of indulgences were abused by priests and religious leaders around you know, the 11th century. Um, so religious leaders taught that you could lessen your time in, in what's called purgatory um, by, buy, by buying with money <laughs> indulgences. I mean, it's taught that purgatory was a, was a place of suffering that you go to, to pay for your sins before you get to go to heaven. Um, and so this, this idea of purgatory um, uh, was, was really huge in, in the, whatever, the 11th century. So the church began to calculate how much time of purgatory you could take off for each indulgence you would buy. And um, the religious leaders started to teach also that you could lessen the time your deceased loved ones got to spend in purgatory by buying indulgences. So you can imagine your mother just died, your dad just died, and you know that they were, they were so you, you would feel bad about that and say, I'm going to buy some indulgences so that I can take time off of their, you know, the time they're spending in, uh, in purgatory. Uh, they even, they're even uh, came with a receipt. This is one of the, from the, from the uh, Middle Ages, this is a receipt or a letter of indulgence that you would, you know, you'd put up in your house and say, oh, he, here's the receipt that I, you know, I have to, to show that I bought time off for myself or for, for somebody that I love. So th- clearly, and those, the people who were poor had absolutely no hope of avoiding purgatory or punishment for their sins. Another one. Check this out. This is a cartoon from the 1800s. Um, <clears throat> it represents the idea that was common at the time um, that, that getting rid of slavery wasn't just wrong. It was an idea from the devil. Uh, it, was, it was evil. It was the devil's idea. So in the, 19, um, in, in the 1840s, uh, Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian uh, denominations, they all split over, over the justification for slavery. Um, so uh, historian Elizabeth Jameson writes that um, Baptist and Methodist churches had opposed slavery at the beginning of our country. They were completely against it. But as their denomination grew and started going south, they started to realize that um, <clears throat> they were rich Southern people um, and holding, holding to an anti-slavery position became to, you know, started to get really hard down there. So all, you know, lots, of the, lots of the wealthy um, church members owned slaves. So religious, religious people down there changed their position and began to justify slavery um, with this expansion into the South. Southern ministers, this is, you know, this historian uh, uh, Elizabeth wrote this. Um, she said, Southern ministers wrote the majority of all published defenses of slavery. 
mind-blowing to me. Um, so for these, for these ministers, slavery wasn't just a, a hard thing to be tolerated. It was divinely sanctioned, necess- necessary part of Christianity, and they applied the same kind of thinking uh, to their rule over women. So wild. Uh, one more, one more. So in the 1980s, I was just a kid. Um, and it was around that time that we were just learning about a disease called AIDS, uh, and those of you guys who were around in the 1980s, you, you know, you, you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about. There was a lot of fear around, uh, around this disease, a lot of fear, a lot of condemnation. I mean, in a 1986 article uh, for the Los Angeles Times, Russell Chandler wrote that st- the statistics show 75% of people who suffered from AIDS were gay males. So we, you know, what, 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 what should have happened or what you know, would have been great it would have happened, that would have been like a clue for Jesus followers to say, oh man, here's this great opportunity to love and to serve a group of people. Um, but uh, that, that didn't happen. <laughs> uh, people turned, you know, turned it into fuel for more fear and incredibly horrifying behavior. Um, when I was 17, when I was 17, a woman who had AIDS came to our school and she came and she did this talk about her experience, you know, and what, what, what it's been like and <clears throat> After she was done talking, I, th- I thought she did a good job. And so I go up to her and I say, hey, you, great job. I was, hey, great job. <laughs> and she, she wants to hug me. And I am terrified. I am terrified. In Russell Chandler's article on the Los Angeles Times, he shares a story of a young man who's dying of AIDS. And a person shared Christ with him. A person at the hospital shares Christ with him. And he decides that uh, he, wants, he wants to be baptized and become a Christian. The local church that the, the person who shared Christ with him <clears throat> Wouldn't, uh, wouldn't let them be baptized in their baptistry. They were afraid uh, AIDS would spread through the water. Again, if, if you weren't alive in the 1980s, you can't appreciate the... It's, it's just terrifying. It's terrifying. Of course, doctors told them that it wouldn't spread that way. It didn't matter. Uh, the same day, other people were going to be baptized as this guy... And so one of the doctors, you know, the guy, the guy, one of the doctors and one of the guys, you know, who was, who has shared Christ with him, they said, listen, all the other people can be baptized first and then we'll baptize him last. And then after he's baptized, we'll drain all the water and sanitize the, sanitize the baptistry. So, you, you know, you'll be good. They still, still wouldn't let him. Church refused. Listen to this, listen to this. The church refused to let a dying man be <laughs> baptized at their church. That takes my breath away. That takes my breath away. How could this happen? How could, how, how could Jesus' followers believe that they could buy their way out of purgatory? How, how could Christian leaders 
stand up and say, not only, not only is slavery not bad, we need slavery. God sanctions slavery. How could that happen? How could it happen that a group of Jesus followers would let their fear and condemnation stop somebody from being baptized? You know, and you guys know this. I can give a thousand other examples from history like these. How, how could Christians or people who say they follow Jesus get so far off track? It, 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 historically, when we look back at it, it, it is, it is mind-blowing. It is we look at them and we say, How, what are you guys doing? What are you guys doing? How could leaders be so sinister and selfish? How could the people who are following them go along with it? And how could Christians who are supposed to be the light of the world become so ingrained in the world that they make no difference in it? How could this happen? We should know. We should know we should find out because if we don't know, most Certainly, it will happen again. And, and, and here's the real truth. Here's the real truth about, about this. Maybe it's happening now. And we don't even realize it. Maybe it's happening now and we don't even realize it. Um, do, do you, anyone of you know the longest chapter in the Bible? Psalm 119, yeah, Woo, good job. Uh, so many of the Psalms are written by a Jewish guy named uh, David, a Jewish king named David. Psalm 119 is anonymous. We don't really know. It's not clear who wrote it. Bible nerds think that it could have been written by David or Daniel or Ezra or Jeremiah. Those of you guys who know your Bible, got your Bible knowledge on. So some of you guys know um, that as a, as a man of God and as, as a king, David had some very troubling things happen in his life. So he, he had some super high highs, but very, very low lows. Um, Daniel, Ezra, Jeremiah, they all lived through the destruction of their nations. So, you know, they're ex, some of them are exiled as slaves. Uh, their homes are destroyed. Um, people uh, were very hostile to them. So I say those things to let you know the kind of person who may have written Psalm 119. Um, Psalm 119 is different than other psalms, um, not just because it's length, but be, it's, it's a poem or a song that's broken down into 22 different sections. If you go to your Bible, I think it would, many Bibles would show this. Each section has eight lines, and each section is dedicated um, to a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So the first section is dedicated to the Hebrew uh, letter Aleph, um, and Aleph section, um, the first letters of each line begin with this letter. So obviously we can't appreciate that because it's translated into English. And so that's something that we would miss. But if you went back to the Hebrew, you would see each line starts with this, this, this letter. So the writer, he goes, he goes on and on in the longest chapter of the Bible with this, this, this love poem, love song. It's, it's creative. The kind of things, if so you guys, those, some of you guys write poems or maybe you write songs. You sit down and you write a song. You're trying to be creative about something that's important to you. This person did this in Psalm 119. He goes on and he's going on and on about a specific subject. And you would think that this, this, you know, this long chapter in the Bible, in Psalms, is probably a love song to God, right? And it, and it is sort of. But if you read it, what comes up pretty quickly is that the real star of Psalm 119 is God's word. 
God's law. Um, the writer goes on and on and on, just gushing about God's laws and God's statutes and God's all, all these things. Um, and, and again, those of you guys who read the Bible, even casually, you start reading in like Leviticus. That's not something you gush about. You don't go, you start reading in Deuteronomy. You're just, there's all these laws and all these rules. The writer of Psalm 119 is going on and on and on saying, how wonderful is your law? How wonderful is your word, God? The majority of our songs in our culture are written about romantic relationships. And that's cool because often those songs give words to feelings that we're having about a special person in our lives. It's really great. The author of Psalm 119 is doing that with God and his word. Uh, and again, for us, it's, it's counterintuitive. We don't think of God's word that way. Most of us don't. It's different than what we would normally gush about. I want to read to you some of Psalm 119. Obviously, because it's so long, I won't read the whole thing uh, this morning. But I want you to, I want to read some excerpts from it. So listen to this. <clears throat> Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. My soul is consumed with longing for your laws at all times. Your statutes are my delight. They are my counselors. Turn my heart Toward your statutes and not toward selfish gain. How I long for your precepts in your righteousness. Preserve my life. May your unfailing love come to me, Lord, your salvation according to your promise, your word, your word. I said that Bible nerds think that um, these words could have been written by David or Ezra or Daniel or Jeremiah, but just for fun for today, let's, let's pretend for a moment it's Jeremiah. Um, those of you guys who, who, know, who don't know who Jeremiah is, he's a religious leader who's alive during the decline of the nation of Judah about 600 years before Jesus shows up. Jeremiah is given the very, very difficult task of telling the nation that God has rejected them. Can you imagine that? Imagine a religious, to make this real, imagine a religious leader getting up, or a famous religious leader that you know, he's getting up and he's taking a group of people, maybe that you know or you love, and he's saying, hey, guess what, guys? God's rejected you. How would you respond to that? How do you think the nation will respond to that? Being told this group of people, this whole group of people is rejected by God. We'd all be you know, very uncomfortable with that. That's what Jeremiah was doing, and the people despised him for it. They arrested him, beat him, threatened him. How dare you say God rejects us? But that, that is exactly what God had told him to do. That's what God told him to do. And so he was just carrying it out. Jewish people did whatever was right to them, at that time, you know, God calls them liars and adulterers and murderers. They took advantage of poor or the poor. They had no mercy on the weak. They participated in religions where group sex and child sacrifices were a part of them. So God tells, God tells Jeremiah to say, hey, listen, God's rejected you. God's rejected you. Think about this. These 
are the people of God. Their job or their role was to come out and say, hey, everybody, this is what God's like. Their, their job was to bridge the gap between people and God, to show people what he's like. So how could this happen that they can become this kind of people? How could they get so far off track? How could they get so far off track? Jeremiah tells us in chapter 7 of his, his book, he says this, he says, <clears throat> God, he's, you know, he's speaking for God. He says this, when I, brought you, when I brought your ancestors out of Egypt and spoke to them, I did not just give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifices, but I gave them this command. Obey me. And I will be your God and you will be my people. Walk in obedience to all I command you that it may go well with you. But they did not listen or pay attention. Instead, they followed the stubborn inclinations of their evil hearts and they went backward, not forward. I think it's so interesting um, that when... um, Jesus followers make God's word their source for decision making. People often say they're behind the times or they're so backwards. Uh, and it's assumed that you're, you're forward thinking um, when you're leaving the word behind, um, when, when you're like, yeah, that's, that's old, we don't need to. When, you, when, when the word's left behind, then you're, then you're forward thinking. But this says that when they left the word behind, they were going backward, not forward. Backward in what way? People became more brutal, more selfish, more unforgiving, less gracious. The things that they thought, they were, oh, yeah, we, we can do this. We've got this. We don't need your help. You don't, we don't need you to tell us what to do. Or how, I, I could be good on my own. God says, let's see. Let's see. And historically, they showed who they were. They showed who they were. As soon as they move away from the commands, it happened, Here, this is why it happened. it happened. It happened because people ignored God's word and assumed that they could be just as good if they lived by their own rules, if they lived by you know, what their hearts told them. And it was, in fact, it, was, it was the fact that no one was reading or being exposed to God's word that the abuses of indulgences could arise. And... and some of you guys know history. When somebody, when, when somebody was started to read the Bible again, it's like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. I'm not paying you to save my, my loved ones from a purgatory. That's not biblical. Jesus never talks about anything like that. It wasn't the use, it wasn't that people were reading the Bible Bible super tight and just super into it that allowed for slavery to become what it was in this country. It was because people were casual about what the Bible said and either they, either they didn't know or they knew and they didn't care. Because if you read the Bible, you can't have permission to do all the things that we all know that American slavery became. You, it's breathtaking. It was the lack of of knowledge of the word of God that allowed for that to happen. And most certainly, most certainly, the way, the way that we 
Christians responded to, to gay people and people with AIDS in the 80s, it came about because people were not reading. They, they read these words in the Bible, but they didn't read the, what the word says about treating people. How It would be breathtaking to me to be a part of a church family that was saying those things to that person with AIDS who wants to be a Christian. How could that be? Could it happen to us? Could it happen to you? Could it happen to you? If Jeremiah wrote Psalm 119 and he's living in a world like that, um, a world with full of cruelty and lack of knowledge of God's word, listen to his words again. Listen to, listen to what he's saying again. <clears throat> Blessed are those whose waves are blameless. Blessed are those who walk according to the word of the Lord. I seek you with all my heart. Do not, I know myself, do not let me stray from your commands. Open my eyes. This is a part of what Charlotte just said. Open my eyes that I can see wonderful things in your law, that I can see the things in law and compared to what, what's going on in me. My soul is consumed with longing for your laws at all time. Your statutes are my delight. They are my counselors. They tell me what to do. What's, what's the use? If, if you've ever gone to a counselor, what's the use of going to a counselor and paying for it and then just saying, I ain't going to do what you say. Uh, here's my money. I'm not going to do anything. You, your statutes are my delight. They are my counselors. Turn my heart towards your statutes and not towards selfish gain. How I long for your precepts in your righteousness. Preserve my life. I long for your law because it saves me. May your unfailing love come to me. Lord, your salvation according to your promise. The author of Psalm 119 is gushing over the law and God's commands and God's statutes and God's words because he sees that what, what their, their nation has become without it. So how about this prayer? How about this prayer? Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. If you're like me, if you, know, you come to the word, you come to the law and you say, oh, that. I don't like that. What if we started praying this prayer? Open my eyes so that I might see wonderful things in your law. To not come to the word assuming that I know everything or assuming that I'm so much smarter than everybody else, everyone throughout history, that I would come to the word saying, Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. It is easy to see God's word as a burden in our culture or backwards or out of date or disposable. Our prayer is a request to see value in it. It is most certainly the prayer that people um, in Jeremiah's day needed. So listen to me on this. Listen to me on this. Listen to me on this. Uh, I'm almost done. We are just as vulnerable to bad decision-making as the people of Jeremiah's day, as the people during the medieval times, 
as the people during slave times, as the people in the 80s, we are just as vulnerable to bad decision-making as they were. And we can all be super high and mighty and self-righteous and look back at them and be like, look how terrible they were. That is so dangerous. Because it can be us. And, it, and, and here's a secret that we all know, right? It probably is already. <laughs> we just don't know. We just don't know. What if our opinions and our thoughts, our morality isn't, isn't superior? What if it's just different? What if it's just different? How can we ever wake up to sins in our lives that we aren't sensitive to anymore? How can we ever wake up to sins in our lives that we just aren't sensitive to anymore? Like Charlotte said, they're there. So, uh, a few months ago, Rex brought up, uh, one of our elders, Rex, brought up this idea for our church family um, of reading the word together over the next several months up to Easter. I want to invite our church family to join the elders and I reading through the book of Luke and Acts together. Uh, Some of you know that Luke is the story of Jesus' life, um, and Acts is a short story, a short history of the early church. Um, So it's our desire uh, that we learn to love the word like the author of Psalms does. Like he's on the edge of his seat, just. And certainly you guys know the Bible is more than God's law. It's our main tool for learning to know God. Um, not a God that we make up in our minds, um, but who he actually is. So if you like, um, Rex has done a lot of work uh, creating some folders for you to help with your reading. Um, you can, obviously, you can read however you want. Um, we're going, there, there's a little, you know, there, there, we'll read certain amount of chapters each week. But um, these folders that uh, Rex has created will have laid out sections for you to read. Um, so each Sunday, then I'll preach on some passage from the sections that uh, we read during, during the week. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> Rex is back there holding one of them, you can see. Uh, so they're, they're actually on the welcome, they're on the welcome desk. Um, for you to pick up. Um, there's places for you to journal in them. Um, and there's, if, if you either don't have a Bible, so sometimes I like to keep, when I'm reading, um, I like to keep all my stuff compact. Um, we printed out the scriptures for you so you can keep up with what, uh, what we'd you know, love for you to read. And, and honestly, each, each day there, you know, there's, um, each week there's like five sections of reading to do. They're not even full chapters. So uh, you, could, you could read them in 10 minutes probably. And like I said, then I'll, then I'll talk about them. So if you'd like a folder to, um, to follow along with, those are out on the welcome table. Love for you to take that. But then you're, all called, you're also um, you're welcome to use a folder, but you also um, can follow along through the Church Center app um, that I was talking to you about earlier. Um, once you choose, uh, you go, you, if you download the app, once you choose our church as your church, um, you'll be able to... Uh, to, to 
to tap on the more section that's down at the bottom and go to Bible reading. Uh, that will take you to a place where you can see um, videos attached to uh, you know, this week's reading. Um, you'll be able to, uh, to read online or you'll be able, some of you guys, maybe you, you don't love reading. you like, I hate to just sit and read. So you can listen. Um, you can listen to um, the verses while you drive or while you work out. Uh, in the time of Jeremiah, one of the things I think is really interesting um, that I, I didn't realize growing up, in the time of Jeremiah, the main way that someone would have exposure to the word is by listening to it. They would show up and people would just read the word, long sections of the word, just out loud to the group of people who, who would assemble. Um, this is their, their context in the Old Testament where they would sit for days listening to the word be read to them. So listening to the Bible is not a cheat or like less, less important than uh, if you read it, um, read it yourself. Love for you to, uh, to do that with us for lots of reasons. To know the Lord, to know yourself. The idea of being in front of the word is allowing it to remind us who God is and who he's called us to be. Um, and, and for us to not assume that we know him apart from, apart from the word. So in just a few minutes, we're gonna take communion together. Communion's a time during worship service where we pause and remember who God is and who he's called us to be. Uh, so if you're a Jesus follower and you'd like to participate, um, there are communion elements out on the table in the lobby. We'd love for you to participate with us in just a few minutes. Um, so <clears throat> when we celebrate the anniversary um, of our weddings, part of what we celebrate is, yes, we made it. Uh, thank God we, we did it. We, you know, we made another year. We made it this far. Um, it's super great. But it's also remembering our commitment to one another. Um, when, when people post on social media, sometimes I see this on social media, they'll say things like, 25 years ago, I promised to be yours, and I'm, we're still going strong, or I promised to be yours, and I'm a, I, that, that is true, or something, you know, stuff like that, stuff like that. And an anniversary can be a recommitment to what you've promised. God uses Jeremiah to remind Israel of her initial commitment to God. This is what he says. Here's what, here's what the Lord says. I remember how faithful you were to me when you were young. You loved me as if you were my bride. You followed me through the desert. Nothing had been planted there. Your people were holy to me. They were the first share of my harvest. Um, so some of you guys know that when, when God set, uses the analogy or the idea of the first share of my harvest, he's referring to the idea that farmers would plant their seeds um, and they would, you know, when they would do that, they would always, always like a, it, was a, it was a gamble. It, it, was, it, was, it was an act of faith. You, they, were, they were never sure that it was going to come up. And then when it did, it was this great celebration. Thanks, thanks to the Lord. And so often there was this, there was this emotional connection with the first, you know, first parts of, the, of, your, of your seed that came up. There was this excitement to it. The Jewish people would take that first, first group of their first fruits and they would give it to the Lord. Again, another act of faith because they weren't sure that any more would come up. But they would, they would do that. It was precious to them, but they would still do it. God's saying that I treasure you the way that you treasure what you value first, your first income, 
Do you remember how faithful you were to me? Do you remember how much you valued it? Pause and consider it. I value you like that. Communion is like an anniversary. It's a vow renewal ceremony. Um, if you're a Jesus follower and you've been baptized, a sign of your commitment to him, um, then you're called to live in sync with the newness of life that you've been given. Your baptism was a promise. It was a promise to seek out Christ in his law. It was a promise to say, I'm going to seek Christ. I'm going to know what he said and I'm going to do it. Psalm 119 says it this way. I promised it once and I'll promise it again. I will obey your righteous regulations. That, 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 that can be our declaration this morning. That, as you say communion, that could be what we're saying. When you're taking this, when you're eating this, when you're drinking this, we're saying, I promised it once and I'll promise it again. I will obey your righteous regulations. Let's renew our vows to the Lord this morning um, to seek him, seek out his word, and do it. Let's pray together. Dear Father, um, I pray that we wouldn't be so self-righteous and arrogant enough to think that we, apart from your word, your law, we can be righteous apart from that. That we, we, we have no idea and we are just as susceptible to mistakes as people who are following you uh, thousands of years ago. I, I pray that we wouldn't look at that, those group of people, of people in the past who've made mistakes and assume that we're, we're more righteous than them, assume that we're better than them. I pray that we would assume that we need you desperately, just like they did. We need you, and we need to be exposed to your word, and we need your, we need your help obeying you. Thank you for... Um, Thank you for putting it on Rex's heart to bring up this idea of us walking through the word together. Um, when we read it, we, we won't always feel like all kinds of emotion or all kinds of spectacular. We, we may walk away from reading it one day and feel like, I didn't get anything out of that. Or I don't have no idea. I don't have any idea what they're talking about here. I pray that we would just trust by exposing ourselves to your word that you will make us into who you want us to be. And it will be who we've been wanting to be this whole time. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information on our church, visit us online at arborbridgechurch.com.